Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening, and welcome to tonight's program hosted by the Wharton Club of Northern California and the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley. My name is Chris Cornwall. It is my pleasure to introduce Gopi Kalil, Chief Evangelist of Brand Marketing at Google and author of The Happy Human, Being Real in an Artificially Intelligent World. At Google, Gopi has led marketing efforts for the company's flagship advertising products, AdWords and AdSense. He earned his bachelor's degree in electronics engineering from the National Institute of Technology in India and received master's degrees in business administration from the Indian Institute of Management and the Wharton School of Business. Gopi sits on the board of the Desmond Tutu Peace Foundation and is an avid triathlete, traveler, and Burning Man devotee. He also teaches a weekly yoga program for Googlers called Yogalers. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Gopi Kalil. Good evening, Palo Alto. Such a delight and honor to be here at the Commonwealth Club. I remember when I first moved to Silicon Valley in the first few weeks, I attended a talk by Jack Welch sitting in the audience looking in awe. And it's, uh, it's a real honor to now be taking the stage at the Commonwealth Club for the first time. So thank you to all of you for making it happen and for being here. October 4th, 2018 was going to be one of the biggest days in my life. As an author, my book, The Happy Human, had just come out, and I was going to be on TV on ABC7 for an interview about the book at 4 p.m. Instead, 4 p.m. October 4th last year, I choose to do something else. I was on a stretcher in the emergency room of Stanford Hospital with an IV down my arm, rapidly losing consciousness. And the next day, October 5th, I was going to be at the Commonwealth Club doing this exact same talk. And I remember one of my last text messages was to George and saying, I don't think I'll be able to make it. Please cancel. Let the audience know. And I said, I chose to do it. But I'm exaggerating. I had actually made a set of choices leading up to that day that had led to ending up on the stretcher. And here I was, having just written a book about the happy human, and I'd made a set of choices and had rapidly devolved to be the unhappy human. <laughs> and that is one of the key messages of this book and this talk, that happiness is a choice, and there are a set of cho choices we make every day that eventually could lead to happiness, or in that particular situation, in my case, extreme unhappiness for the next several days. And what was also ironic was I had ignored one of the principal messages in my own book. Imagine writing a whole chapter, forgetting all those principles, living in some other way, and completely losing your way. But before I do all that, I, mean, I go into what exactly happened and what that principle is. Why write a book about happiness? Where did this idea come from? Happiness is one of the most research-written-about topics Human beings are extremely curious for obvious reasons because everybody is in pursuit of happiness. If you search on Amazon.com, you get more than 50,000 books. In fact, 
all Amazon will tell you is over 50,000. Basically, they're saying there are so many books, we stop counting. There's no point even giving you the actual number. And everybody seems to have written about it. There's a book by Pope Francis, Promising Happiness in This Life. There's one by the Dalai Lama saying, The Art of Happiness. There's one by Sean Eckhor, the modern-day guru from Harvard, uh, currently doing tours, uh, speaking about happiness. And then there's Gretchen Rubin, the New York lawyer who decided to study this topic by taking a year off from a law firm and said, I'm going to read every single book, research paper on happiness, and try them all and run an experiment for a year or two years, blog about it, and that became the Happiness Project and also Runaway Bestseller. So why write about happiness? And how did I come up with this title, The Happy Human? It all started with my friend, mentor, and coach, Stuart Newton, a very important figure in my life. In fact, so important, I decided to ask him to come right here. Stuart, will you please stand up? He's right here. Everybody, this is Stuart Newton, my coach. So Stuart and I have a routine as my friend and mentor. Once a month, he will ask to meet me early in the morning around 7.30 or so, so we can go for a walk around the Shoreline Park. And it's usually a very unhappy thing for me, which means I have to get up really early. And I'm always late meeting. He's very prompt in time. But finally, I get there. And once I get there, I do change my state, and I become the happy human. So one morning, about five years ago, as we were going for a walk on the low hills of Shoreline Park, I was in a state of angst. I was very unhappy. And it's a state of unhappiness that I had inflicted on myself. And it happens every 90 days around most companies in Silicon Valley. It's a period of angst and suffering, self-inflicted, that seems to get unleashed when the quarterly performance review comes out. And all many, I, and looking around the room, I can recognize many of you work for one of the other tech corporations and other companies here. And every quarter you get a word or a number attached to your name, and your whole life is dictated by what the number says. And the word would be underperformed, exceeds expectations, met expectations, fell into slot A. Or sometimes even with micro-precision, your ratings are 6.3. How do you even determine that? That somebody is 6.3, someone is at 6.4. Point one difference. Anyway, people, we all attach so much value to it that it creates this period of angst. And I was going through my own angst. And I was walking around with Stuart talking about it. And I was completely caught up in this conversation around promotions and levels and titles. Does it sound familiar? Around here? Yeah. So I wasn't caught up in this. At one point, Stuart stops me and said, Gopi, wait, 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 wait. You got this wrong. You're so obsessed about titles and levels. Let me ask you a question. What title would the Dalai Lama give you? And I paused and reflected on it. And it wasn't just an accidental random question he was throwing at me. Four months before that, I'd met His Holiness in Dharamsala. And... During that, So I paused to think about that conversation. And what struck me during that conversation was the Dalai Lama as a monk does not have any of the trappings that we associate with success, happiness, power, etc. 
He's a Buddhist monk. So all he has is his, his russet robes and a begging bowl. A begging bowl. His only possession in the world. He's never had a bank balance. And he's supposed to be the secular and temporal head of the Tibetan people, but he has not met them for 68 years, living in exile away from Tibet. And yet, when you meet him, the thing that strikes you is here's a man who manifests joy. There's a, he has, of course, a little sadness about the situation for himself and his people, but he still manifests joy. And in conversation, if you've ever seen him in interviews on TV or seen him live, it starts with a little twinkle in the eye and then a chuckle and before soon a rumbling laughter that grows up from here. And he's like uh, a Buddhist Santa Claus and he goes, ho, 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 and suddenly with a slap, slaps his thigh and a great big eruption of laughter. There's, there's a certain sense of joy. But I thought about that and told Stuart, the title I think the Dalai Lama would give me, or I would want from him, is the happy human. And Stuart put his hand on my shoulder and said, Gopi, let me tell you this. The happy human is a higher title than senior vice president. <laughs> because the senior vice president wants to be happy and does not know how. And often you could spend your entire career climbing all these ladders, getting to the level, and finally realizing the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. That the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. And that was like a punch in my gut, what he said. And it stopped me in my tracks and made me think. And I thought it was so profound that I actually got name cards printed. And this is my name card now with a happy face. And the back it under my name, it actually says, the happy human. Because prior to that, I was used to going around social engagements, and people would say, so what do you do? And the immediate response, which is typical of all of us in a modern society, and it comes something like, I'm director of networking operations at this company. But that is just your job. That is not who you are. That is not your identity. And I said, I am choosing to have this as my identity, that I am the happy human. And that's what led to this thinking, which eventually became this book. So after Stuart told me this, I started asking the question, what are the choices I'm making in my life? What are the choices we make in our lives? What are we pursuing? What is important to us? And what is fundamentally the organizing principles of the things that we do, this thing we call our life? And I came to the conclusion, for me personally, it's three things. Happiness, freedom, and peace. Now, these are universal values. We all want to be happy. We all seek freedom in any culture around the world, and we want peace. When I say peace, we want to have conditions of inner peace, and we want to live in conditions of outer peace. So there's nothing very sacred or profound about this, except I realize that every day we make choices that either increase these three things or take something away from the quality of happiness, peace, and freedom. And I said, I can make these choices. It's in the jobs we do, the projects we sign up for, the, the music we listen to, the people we fall in love with, all of those things, millions of choices we make, either increases these things or decreases. I said, if that is the case, then with an engineer's precision, I should be able to figure out a formula, the levers that I can pull to increase happiness, freedom, and peace. And today I want to talk about this concept of, so how do we do it? How do you increase your happiness? 
And much like Gretchen Rubin, I started conducting experiments, reading about it, listening to people, talking, asking questions, watching someone, and conducting experiments with myself to see can I increase the factors of happiness or what takes away from the quality of happiness. And the book is really a collection of my own exploration and experiments. Most of them failed or it didn't lead to any great happiness, but some of them did. Or at least I started understanding the boundaries of what is possible and what leads to it, either fleeting happiness or long-term happiness. And that is one of my biggest conclusions, that we treat our entire life as a giant experiment to understand and answer this question. And I can't do it for you. I can give you some clues, but each one of us have to explore and find it for yourself. So I want to talk about five principles in the time we have from the book, among the many that I talk about before that. Let me just reset my timer. Let's stop. So the five principles, the first one I want to talk about is a simple concept of take your meds. This is what a doctor would tell you if you are not feeling well. Make sure, and I'm giving you these meds, take your meds every day. Except in this case, it is imagined that your happiness doctor is telling you, and one of the simple discoveries in my life I found out was there are certain things I can do for this physical container, my body, my mind, my spirit, my consciousness, that can actually influence my happiness. And this formula of take your meds I learned actually through an organization here in Silicon Valley called the South Asia Heart Center, started by Dr. Cesar Molina. And Vidya is here, good friends with Dr. Molina. And he's the one, or his organization is the one that taught me this formula. And in this case, the factors of happiness, the meds, is not something getting a little white pill. But for me personally, what I've found drives my happiness is the simple four words, meditation, exercise, diet, and sleep. Again, nothing very sacred and profound. We have two monks here who practice and teach this, Dada Nabanilananda and, uh, and Dada Jagdishananda, you know, who are professional practitioners of uh, these principles. But with tinkering around, I found that if on a daily basis I take my meds in terms of M for meditation, E for exercise, D for diet, and S for sleep, it increases my happiness. And so this principle really is experiment with your body, mind, consciousness and figure out what are your daily meds that you need to take. And it doesn't have to be very complex. The the most amazing thing I found out is that the operating manual for this has already been established by other people playing around with these factors over hundreds of years. So it's available for us in various traditions, whether it's in the yoga tradition or whether it's in a Buddhist meditation tradition or whether it is in some other non-religious, non-spiritual tradition means maybe a Native American practice. But whatever it is that optimizes this container, I call it your inner net. And for me, it was these four things on a daily basis. Now, I will say on a daily basis, I do try you know, to meditate. I did my interval training and diet. When I say diet, not as in dieting, but eating consciously. And for me, it is plant-based food, things that grow on a plant as opposed to things that are made in a plant meaning less processed food (laughs) and more things that look green and as close to its natural state. And sleep, it's a simple concept of something we all do and we can do, seven to eight hours. I will admit that is still a theoretical aspiration for me. I'm the 
biggest violator of the last one, and it's a daily struggle. And in August, as I was traveling around the world, just before I ended up on the stretcher, I had forgotten these principles. But what I had done was, during 12-week period, leading up to October 4th, had gone through nine cities, four countries, and not simply traveling, I had done intense stuff like honoring the passing of my father, competing in a world championship of public speaking, being at Burning Man, doing a festival at Esalen, and finally when it got to that point, like fed and launching the book, fed by adrenaline and passion and this drive for something, I'd forgotten the core principle of meds, and nature comes roaring back. In fact, as a result, the condition that I was facing with, I could barely speak, with constant hiccuping. And to get to my attention, what nature did was took away my most fundamental, precious asset, resource, talent, the ability to get on a stage and speak. And as a result, for the next week, I canceled 16 engagements where I would have been speaking in different settings. Humbling reminder, again, to take your meds every day. The second principle I want to talk about is this concept of find meaning and purpose. This Ask the simple question, what is your life all about? What is our life all about? What is central to it? And pursuing that meaning and purpose. First of all, having that meaning and purpose, whether you, and then pointing yourself in the direction, walking towards it, is a fundamental driver of happiness. Whether you actually accomplish that meaning and purpose in your life or not. So as you sit here and as you go off, I I want each one of you to ask that question. What is central to your life? What gives you meaning and purpose? And everybody will come up to that and arrive at that answer very differently. And if we ask Yvonne, it might be through a practice of teaching yoga and healing people by giving them the space, the the, the, the facility to transform themselves through the practice of yoga. That might be central to our meaning, I'm guessing, from what I know of you want. So you might turn around and ask, so how do you define it for yourself with your job? So yes, I do work at Google, but in the tech company, I define my meaning and purpose as the intersection of business and technology for the greater good. Now, that sounds like corporate speak. It's like what you'd put on a PowerPoint slide. What does it mean in practical terms? So I'll tell you a small story about how I think about my own life professionally and how I find meaning and purpose. And for this, I want to take you back to a small village in southern India in a state called Kerala, where Salila comes from, and I think I suspect you also. And it's called Chitlanjiri, an excuse for the you know, slides and presentation. We had some tech problems. And imagine this, in the middle of Silicon Valley, four of us went to work, and this is the best that we could come up with. <laughs> and part of happiness is also just not letting any of that bother you and rolling right along. Okay. Okay. So this is just a patchwork solution we figured out. It works. I'll go with this. So uh, if you can see the green paddy fields, that's my home village. This is where my roots go back to. And it's in this village in Chitlanjeri that my grandparents on the uh, your left bottom grew up as poor rice farmers cultivating a plot of land about the size of what maybe this theater and the nearby building occupies. They were marginal subsistence farmers. And it is in this village where my parents who are on the top right. Uh, this was going to be a build, but it's not working, so I'm just throwing up everything directly. Uh, my parents on the top right grew up 
in this village uh, in two poor rice farming families with a very modest background compared to the level of affluence we experience every day living in this part of the world. So they grew up without electricity. They grew up without running water. They don't have a formal college education. The best they could get was 10 years of schooling in the village school, in the rural village school where they were living. And everything ended at that point in terms of formal education. But they had aspirations for the kids, just like parents everywhere in the world have. And thanks to those aspirations, their four kids, that is me and my three siblings, we went on to get 10 college degrees. <laughs> Including two from U.S. Ivy League business schools, and Wharton being one of them, and I know there are several Wharton grads in the audience, I recognize them. Even though my parents had never set foot in America, and that question is often asked, what caused that kind of social mobility in one generation? It was very simply access to information. But when we were growing up, it was very slow access. I remember taking an eight-hour train journey from the place, my engineering school, Tiruchirappalli, where Renu, a good friend of mine, also went to, to the nearest big city of Chennai so that I could look at a physical copy of the U.S. World News Guide to Graduate Schools. Eight-hour train journey. Today, we wouldn't wait eight seconds on our phones. <laughs> but still, we got access to the information, even if it was slow access, and that is what propelled the family forward. But today, when I go back to the village school, and that's the bottom right picture, infrastructure-wise, the school looks pretty much the same, except for one difference. And this is a story that is unfolding all over the world. And it's not just in this village, but in other villages, whether it's in India or Ghana or in Siberia, Peru, and that is kids with access to computers and the kind of technologies many of you are working on now have access to the same amount of information as somebody who goes to Stanford University. These kids can watch the same TED Talk, even if they can attend TED. Even if they don't understand the language, it's auto-translated into a language they can speak. They can watch the National Geographic video of underwater sea life, even if they've never seen the ocean. In an era where information is like oxygen, we are leveling the playing field for humanity. And that gives me my meaning and purpose. This is what gets me out of bed and gets me inspired every single day with the work I'm doing. Now, all of this is well and good, but we live absolutely fantastic and, uh, and, and, and Wildly spectacular life, I would say, if you live in this part of the world and the kind of companies that happen here. These are not everyone's circumstances. So you could turn around and ask me, this is all well and good, but most people don't have access to these. This is not the privileged life. How do you find happiness when everything in your life has fallen apart? And this is a story I want to tell of a person I met in the book. I have several stories documented of people I met that I could not imagine the circumstances and how they found a way to happiness despite those. And they did it through meaning and purpose. And once a story is a woman called Sunita Danwar. I met her in Kathmandu, Nepal. I'd gone there two years ago with a group of Googlers to work on uh, uh, sex trafficking problem. We were trying to see if we could use technology at scale to address the very pervasive and pernicious problem of sex trafficking that is there in, in that part of the world. And at age 13, Sunita was duped out of her family in a small village 
and ended up in the sex trafficking trade outside the country. She ended up in actually in Mumbai. So imagine you're 13 years old and you're far away from your family. And, and when you hear the stories, it is horrific. I don't want to go into the details, but you can let your imagination wander when you realize that at that age, you're told to meet with and service 12 to 14 clients. Terrible situation. But eventually, she and the other girls in that situation were rescued by the Indian police and taken back to Kathmandu. And when they got there, they were in a halfway shelter. Completely traumatic experience over a year and a half. And the families would not take them back because of stigma, because of uh, uh, societal pressures. And these girls were sitting around in circles crying in a completely desperate situation. And at that time, Sunita was 15. And she said, if nobody cares for us, we will take care of ourselves. We can self-organize. Imagine, she's 15 years old. And she launched an organization called Shakti Samuha, which translated from Hindi or Nepali means Shakti means power, not just any power, but divine feminine power. The kind of power that that part of the world, they believe, fires and runs the universe. And Samuha means working together in as a group. So Sunita found Shakti Samoha. She is now 31 years old. She's married. She's got two kids. And she's effectively the CEO of Shakti Samoha. And when I met her in Nepal, she had just come back from New York after speaking at a conference on sex trafficking. She's like one of the most fire pistol activists on this topic. And she runs this organization which provides a shelter to girls being currently rescued from the situation. And what is striking to me, and obviously she is in a very happy place now, she's also this fierce determination. She has this meaning and purpose. Her life is defined by one single fact. She said, I'll do everything within my power to create conditions so that no other girl in the future will ever go through the situation. And under her charge, we went to two shelters run by Shakti Samuwa, where these young girls, and this time they were 12, 14, 15, or 18, and who had come from similar situations. And they now feel safe and well taken care of, thanks to this organization Sunita has founded. And when we met with these girls, I was struck by, despite the traumatic situation, how they were able to put behind them and still express so much happiness, laughter, dancing. I was, I, I was blown away by the resilience of the human spirit. And one more thing that impressed me about what she has done is every staff member of the organization actually has come from the same situation. So for these young girls, they were role models. They would look up to these older women, these aunties, and say, if they could make their life work, even we can. And that is the power of finding meaning and purpose, even in a very terrible situations. And there are dozens and dozens of stories that I came across that some I talk about in this book. What is your meaning and purpose is something I want you to reflect on. The third principle I want to talk about is this notion of living a full life. What do I mean by this? So in my own case, for years, my life was defined by living on a simple one track, which is the classic model, especially if you come from India, you would recognize this. You, know, you go to engineering school, and then you go to grad school in engineering or business, and then you find a job in in, in technology and either in India or another part of the world, and the, your life is defined by a very 
left brain way of thinking and you are analytical and you can code and you can work with numbers. And this is very familiar to me and a lot of my friends. And that's about all my life was defined by. There's not a whole lot beyond that. But somewhere along the line, about 10 years ago, something opened up. And thanks to encouragement by people like including Stu, I gave myself permission to live a full life. It started with writing down a list of 100 things I want to do in my life before I die. And some people call it the bucket list. And I started putting all, and I wrote it actually shortly after I graduated from Wharton as I was traveling around the world. And there were all sorts of things I wrote, but anything that got my attention. And then I started going towards them and pursuing them. So, for example, travel and not travel extensively, but using that as one of the items on the list. I said I want to get to every continent, and I made it to all seven continents, including it Antarctica. And to get to Antarctica at one point, I was not even sure how to get there. So I said, I knew if I went south, eventually I'll get. And, I, and that's all I told the travel agent, get me a ticket to Buenos Aires, because I know it's further south. And eventually I found my way to Santiago and Punta Arenas, the southernmost point. And there I found somebody who takes small groups to the Chilean uh, research station. And eventually I found my way into Antarctica and spent some time at the research station. Or... When I first arrived here, I could barely string together a sentence eloquently. I had never been on a real stage. I'd never done a speech. So I asked somebody, how do you learn the skill? And they pointed me towards this organization called Toastmasters. And I go there and I learn how to speak and found they have these speech competitions that lead up to the world championship. And I said, that's a cool thing. Let me try that. This was 20 years ago. And 20 years I went through the system. Eventually I found myself in the semifinals of the world championship of public speaking four times. And last year, I've, I actually placed second in the, uh, uh, I placed in the top 20 in the world championship from among 35,000 people. All that by simply making that one change saying, I am going to lead a full life. And same way, I'd never, I could not imagine writing a book. I barely had an aspiration. I would walk into a bookstore library and be completely struck by all these books. I could barely write a two-page term paper and complete it. I could not imagine who are these people who are writing these 700-page tomes. How do they do it? How much effort is involved? I could not imagine. And I was speaking at a yoga festival in Lake Tahoe once, Wanderlust, when right after my talk, two ladies came up to me and said, you seem to have a great message. When you're ready to write a book, we'll publish it. And I said, really? And I walked through the door. So living a full life is simply just asking yourself question, what are the things that you want to do that will make you happy, that will fulfill you, and saying yes to the smallest opportunity that comes your way. And when a door opens, just walking through it. And I'm saying these examples from my own life, not to impress you, but impress upon you that I went from not really having any of these things as part of my repertoire to just starting, just giving myself permission to live a full life and then seeing what will manifest. And I'll tell you one more example of that, and then I'll move on. This giving yourself permission. So I have no musical talent. My family is completely devoid of any kind of creative self-expression. This we know from a fact, historical fact. Across many generations, there are no artists, no musicians, no writers. But one day on University Avenue, I saw a sign in the Starbucks, and the sign said, if you can speak, you can sing. Singing lessons by a Palo Alto music teacher. So I called her up and I took my first 
music lesson, a singing lesson. And it went from one thing, a second lesson at Mission College in Santa Clara, and eventually getting drawn to a musical tradition called Kirtan and meeting a producer, and they released two music albums. And the last album, the uh, Kirtan launch, Precious Jewels, ended up in the Grammy Ballad in the World Music category for 2019. And again, all of this coming from just making one choice. I choose to live a full life. I'm going to say yes to life. And when a door opens, walk through it. And this has been a source of much happiness for me personally. And, and I would say for many of you that I know personally also, saying yes to life. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. The fifth principle, or the fourth one actually, is this notion of walking towards the storm as opposed to away from it. So, so far it looks like our life is absolutely joyous and everything is going swimmingly well and you create projects and you accomplish a lot. But that is not true, right? Reality is not even close to it. And I don't have to tell you this. Three things we are guaranteed in our life, which is death, disease, and disappointment. Absolutely, universal. People we love will leave us and we're going to die eventually. And no matter how much you try, this container is going to deteriorate. And we and our loved ones will have to deal with disease, guaranteed. And it's a terrible time. And uh, we are going to be disappointed. People we love may betray us, hurt us, let us down. All sorts of things, guaranteed. So life is not perfect. It is going to go terribly wrong, or at least from our expectations. So given that situation, how do you approach it? How do you still find your way to the happiness? And a metaphor that I was taught by my another mentor at uh, Google, Big Gundotra, was to be like the American bison. The American bison has this unique quality that when a winter storm approaches in the Great Plains of Montana or in the valleys of the Midwest, it is the only animal that won't flee the storm. All the other animals try to run away from the storm. The American bison turns towards the storm and walks towards it. And it understands somehow instinctively from nature that if it walks towards the storm, the sooner it will get out of the storm. And that became this powerful metaphor for me in my life, and I started experimenting with it. When a difficult situation comes, can I turn towards it and walk towards it as opposed to being fearful and fleeing from it? And just that action took away that fear, just that metaphor, and gave me a lot of power to actually find my way to happiness. So in 2005, everything in my life seemed to collapse in the same week. I was living in about five minutes away from this theater, and one day I found out that my personal relationships were in turmoil. I got laid off from my very promising startup job, and I didn't have a place to live. And a serious uh, uh, setback in my financial situation as well. All happened in like one week. All of a sudden, my life had completely unraveled. 
And I felt like helpless, panicky, depressed. I remember calling Stuart and talking to him about it. And he made me, he said, can you answer these three questions for me? And the answer to those three questions fundamentally changed my thinking about the situation. And essentially is pointing me towards the storm and says, walk into the storm. And the three questions, and you might be curious, what were those three questions? Those three questions were, if you remember correctly, Stuart, what is the greater good that can come out of this situation? How can you respond to the situation with compassion towards yourself? And while everything in your life seems to be falling apart, what you can choose, the choices we make, what you can choose is how will you respond to the situation? So that 10 years from now, you can look back and say, I chose to respond with grace and dignity. I did the best I could. And that is what I did. I walked towards the storm, and I remember traveling for the next six months around the world for nine countries while I thought about this, took advantage of the time and spaciousness in my life, came back and rebuilt my life, and eventually building what is an enormously happy life, I would say, and coming out of that situation by choosing to walk towards the storm. So again, use that bison as a metaphor. And I want to finally finish up by this concept I talk about in the book. And it's my personal uh, conclusion that in trying to be the happy human, the most important word of the three is human. And we can only find our way to happiness by embracing the human in our humanity. And what does that mean? It means that you know, essentially we are defined by who we are as human beings, which means life, you know, relationships and love and birth and death, whom we love, the things we try, success and failure. And there are some fantastic moments and not so great ones, but embracing all of it as part of the human condition and not resisting life I found was the easiest way to find happiness, which means you try different things, you dream big, you'll fail most of the time, but embrace the failure. Treat all of that as essential parts of the suchness of life, the isness of life, and part of our human condition. So the more we accept our, 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 our fallibility and all aspects of our human condition, and embrace it and say, this is just who we are as human beings. Every single aspect of it, the more we do it and the less we stop resisting life, I find actually creates conditions for happiness in a natural way on a daily basis. But in the midst of all this, the thing that inspires me most under the aspect of being truly human are what we humans are capable of. And the changes we are making. This is true that if you were to pick up any... Uh, or listen to any source, or read any source of news today, you will come out within five minutes as a terribly unhappy human, right, based on what is reported. But in the midst of all of this, I'm constantly, when I think of what is happening over a long-term period, the macro conditions that are shifting, all because of what we are doing as human beings, that is cause for great happiness, celebration, and a tremendous amount of hope. So... I don't want to make this a talk about statistics, but if you look at long-term trends, whether in terms of infant mortality or education or the amount of people living in freedom, all created because there's something in our human condition that allows us to work collectively and do that. Now, one simple fact, just to point that out, 
going all the way back to 1820, 94% of the population lived with less than $2 in today's dollar terms, 94%. We have now, through our combined economic activity and creating systems, etc., the human has created conditions where we are this close. We are about 30 years away from actually eliminating abject poverty in the world. In the last 30 years alone, we lifted 1 billion people out of it. That didn't automatically happen. That's because of enormous amount of working together and creativity in our efforts. And if you had to step back and look at it, and that's the aspect of being human on this planet that actually I celebrate a lot and, and it's a source of great happiness. And I want to end with, before we go into a Q&A session, one simple thought for you to ponder about. And that is the first principle I talked about when it comes to happiness, is we have to find our way into happiness by experimenting with the conditions of a life, and each one of you has to do it. I mean, you can read or look at different methodologies, etc., but eventually each one of us has to find our way, which is why we have great traditions around the world, including what, say, Dada teaches and uh, espouses. And the framework I want you to think about, or, or a sort of like an idea or concept, or a construct, and this is not my original. I picked this up at Burning Man. I've been going to Burning Man for 15 years. And for five of those years, Stuart and his lovely wife, Darcy, have been my companions into the great adventure in the desert. And I'm sure many of you are burners as well. But the construct I learned after going for years and years to Burning Man is this, that all of life... It's an experiment. Experiments lead to unexpected results. But we will never find out until we try. And therefore, on this topic of happiness, I want to end by telling you all to think of your life as just one giant experiment to find your pathway to happiness. And each of you have to conduct thousands of little experiments and they will lead to unexpected results. I can't guarantee. Nobody can guarantee. But you will find out for yourself, and you'll never find out until you try. I wish you all a fantastic journey to being eternally happy humans. Thank you. Thank you. Now I'd like to welcome the moderator, Hazen. <laughs> Well, excellent. Thank you so much. I uh, certainly resonate with the quarterly reviews. We're going through ours at Amazon. Yes. Uh, <laughs> apparently, I'm a slacker yeah. with no long-term goals, but, uh, you know. <laughs> I'm sorry for the suffering that it has unleashed on you, okay? Stuart, I think you need to take him for a walk. Yes, yes. Uh, but I will pitch Amazon. You can get the book there. So, <laughs> Yeah, my name is Hazen Jihu. I'm a senior manager at Amazon. Uh, very happy to uh, work with the Commonwealth Club. I mean, was uh, I've read your book several times because I was going to do the moderating back. I would in like October. to give you a new title. <laughs> <laughs> we should talk about my new title. Okay, <laughs> the Happy Human. The, hap I, the, the the second happiest human on stage. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, um, uh, a couple of things when I was uh, stalking you on the internet, you know, searching away. Uh, thank you for the Google Chrome. Um, what prompted you to make a list of a hundred things? But more importantly, um, the Dalai Lama was number 36. Correct. So I'm very curious what was number one. 
Um, so the, what prompted me to start the list was uh, I had, when I was at business school, I'd read the story of Ted Leonsis, who was the president chairman of, uh, sorry, president of America Online at the time, and a business leader I'd admired. And years before he got into that role, he was landing on a flight in Atlanta. It had a, it had a mechanical problem, and it had to do a belly landing, a very dangerous landing. And at that time, he said he realized life can be short, and he resolved that he's going to live the rest of his life by what he called playing offense, just saying yes to a full life. So coming out of that uh, that accident situation, he wrote a list of 100 things. And when I was reading the article, he had accomplished 51 of those. I was so impressed. I had never heard of such a thing. But I, that's what gave me the idea. And then after I graduated from school, all of us were traveling around the world with the signing bonus that we get when you get your first job, <laughs> blown up, and uh, uh, traveled to the nine countries and long train rides through different parts of the world, China, Mongolia, Japan. I started writing my list, and I would just write whatever came into my mind, and, uh, and number 36, it just, I wrote, I want to see the Dalai Lama, I want to meet him in person, okay. and that's what led to it. And how often do you revisit that list, and do you try to you know, turn on? Do you rank order, or you say, "Oh, this is more important now"? How often? Yeah, does that you change? purge it. I've dropped some things that I thought were super important. I feel like are no longer. I can't. I could. It's not going to optimize my three values, so I've struck them off. I put new things on it, and some things I'm less interested in pursuing. You, your life is an experiment. Uh, it, Changes it's quickly. never static. <laughs> I visited several times a year, and in December last week, I do an, I go to a monastery in India, or a spiritual center, and I spend the time looking at that list and then deciding what my life or what my organizing principle should be for the next year. And I write it pretty religiously. Yeah. <laughs> Part of my left brain still exists in function. <laughs> So you broke it nicely down in your presentation, you know, into sort of the, you had the five, the meds, et cetera. You know, finding meaning and purpose, yeah. very important to kick off. Rewrite your own stories and live life to the max. It's sort of a life of no regrets. You know, it sounds pretty simple, and you use some of the stats, and I stole them from your book here, yeah. about the plethora of information that's supposed to guide people to be happy. But it seems rather elusive. You know, it seems that people are happy for a short period of time, like they go on vacation. And they come back and they fall into the doldrums. And then they have a, 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 their first kid. And then they hit the terrible twos, and that drags them down. So how do you sustain happiness? Or is this expected to have a high frequency as you go through experiments? Yeah, I mean, you ask an important question, and I forgot to mention that it's so important that it's even enshrined in our Constitution, right? The Founding Fathers said this is a civilization or nation built to enable its citizens the pursuit of happiness. But clearly they must have known something about what you're asking because they only promised the pursuit of happiness, not its capture. <laughs> and uh, it is a very elusive concept, and that's why besides individuals and, and leaders of religions writing about it, governments try to pursue it. Bhutan has, they say, the entire country's purpose, happiness, and they measure the gross national happiness. And I met the economists who put together... Uh, the model at the World Happiness Summit. There is such a thing. Yes. And it's spoken in the last two years. <laughs> it's in Miami. It's coming up in March. So there's entire conferences. And Dubai has just appointed 
a minister of happiness. But in the midst of all this, I would agree, it is a very elusive concept. And at least if you read all of these thinking that goes, there is the differentiation between what is short-term happiness versus what is much more long-term happiness or bliss and joy. And uh, I subscribe to a philosophical model that comes from the Indian spiritual tradition of what really gives substantial long-term happiness. But I won't go into that. That's an entire <laughs> thesis, and I'll have to teach this to you for the next six years be, or so. That would be a, a sequel, I believe, <laughs> yeah. that. yes, in the authoring business. But it, it exists. <laughs> the operating manual exists. Yes. You know, we can find our way to it. How important or how difficult do you think it is for um, up-and-coming generations, like the millennials, who I think if you listen to people like Simon Sinek and they um, are surrounded by technology and interruptions and immediacy, that they are going to have a difficult time finding happiness. Not to mention such societal pressures like body shaming, and reality TV and competitive shows and winner-take-all. Like, that's sort of enforced at them now. I see down at Starbucks kids with a screen in front of them when they're only six months old. Like, how are they going to break out of something that's so intense and in their face all the time to do wandering and curiosity? Yeah. How do you break that cycle? So I personally disagree with that whole theory that is floating around. I don't think the conditions for happiness for human beings now are much more difficult or vastly different from what it was 50,000 or 500,000 years ago. Throughout history, 100 billion humans have walked this planet, and we are the uh, we are the, the the most recent seven billion instances of it. And I am in my own belief is that what creates conditions for happiness is not these externalities. You, know, you talked of technology, and you talked of news cycle, and you talked of social media, all of that. Those are all external factors. What really creates conditions for happiness is shifting our consciousness, not changing our externalities. So my belief is that the conditions for happiness, and this is what most long-term philosophical and spiritual traditions have been arguing. So the original book of Epictetus is as valid now as it is, and, and Sean Aker's theory on happiness is still based on the same conditions of happiness that I think... Uh, human beings created from inside out. So therefore, we are as unhappy or as, ha as happy as we were several millions years ago. Having said that, I will say <laughs> that you know, having a little bit of indoor plumbing and air conditioning and heating systems and a nice car makes you a little bit more happier. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? <laughs> what kind of car do you have? <laughs> okay. <laughs> You really want to know? It's no, actually no, a small uh, used no Nissan Leaf parked outside. A Nissan Leaf. Oh, that's a good choice. <laughs> Lots of technology in that car. Um, uh, just, uh, just was handed to me from the audience. Didn't yeah. quite sure. Please what saying yeah. here it says what you're teaching in your book should be the should um, be the main thing taught to kids three to fifteen years age. Become K twelve is focused in college administration jobs, which is very low ceiling. How can one change education to be more mindful? Yeah. And, and uh, who, are, who asked the question, by the way, if you opened at me so I can look at you? Yeah, I completely agree. And it's not just around happiness. And I talk about it to several people here in the audience with Dada, with Yvonne, et cetera. It's about nutrition. It's about health. It's about some of the basic things that are fundamentally super important, I think, to our way of living. It's not taught in the formal education system. And uh, most of my learning in these domains 
I had to pick it up outside of it. Or it's expected that you learn it in your home and your parents will teach this to you or you self-teach yourself or um, if you have some sort of religious or spiritual tradition, those institutions are supposed to teach these kind of values and construct, etc. It's my theory that this is why most of us struggle with so many primary aspects of living a healthy, fulfilled, happy life in adult years and why there is an entire industry catering to people uh, 20 years and up to teach you these things, everything from detox to personal growth to self-development uh, is because the fundamentals are not taught at uh, at a school level and somehow we have fallen into the trap of believing that learning the basics of math, science, chemistry, geography, geopolitics, etc. is far more important than learning how to live a good life. So there, you mentioned uh, Bhutan, yeah. and they had a happiness minister, and, uh, and, and Google does a lot of things in the, in yeah. the happiness domain. Um, and the World Happiness Report came out. And uh, once again, Finland ranked number top. And actually, the Scandinavian company, countries tend to dominate. Um, any guesses on where the USA landed? Number 42? Oh, well, no, uh, number 18. 18. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just for a shout-out for Canada, number 7. Okay. So I'm a, but if we win the Stanley Cup, number 2. I'm pretty sure number 2. Um, so what, what, in, at Google and or in Bhutan, where you have a focus on trying to generate and or measure happiness, what are the examples? Like, What would the Minister of Happiness in Bhutan do? to try to encourage happiness or, or even detect unhappiness? What would be the, the moral conscious for creating an atmosphere of happiness? What are they trying to accomplish? Yeah. Uh, now, I've not looked at, you know, it's in great detail of the government effort in the book and in my own thinking. I, I have subscribed theories that it is your personal responsibility. It is not someone else's job to make you happy. We have to take unconditional responsibility for our own happiness. And much of my focus is basically that's why experimenting with it at a personal level and not relying on something outside of it. But having said that, let me try to answer your question. You know, what can you do to make yourself happy? So like I said, you know, talking about the meds formula, right? There, those are basic things that can be taught to any large group of people around meditation exercise diet or nutrition and and sleep hygiene, just to use a simple kind of construct. The, the, the second is there are enough and more uh, theories or things that you can do to pursue happiness that has been researched and well-documented at a neuroscience level. And I won't go into those theories, but to the extent that you believe them, that can be incorporated as part of your educational system as your health system or as part of your welfare and social system. There are a number of things that you can do at a government level. But having said all this, happiness will continue to be an elusive thing because it's a relative... It's a relative construct for everybody. And I don't think it can be government-mandated and regulated. (laughs) They can facilitate it. But unless it is it comes from within each individual at a very very individual level 
And so one of the examples that uh, I see at Google that you're trying to get yoga, like everybody has opportunity to do yoga once a week, every campus worldwide. Why is yoga so important? Why do you pivot on yoga and not say, I don't know, Tai Chi or art or music? Is there something about yoga that personally works for you or do you think it's a no, great For me avenue? personally or did he say Google? I want to understand. Oh, uh, let's go stick with Google. No, like, so it's uh, Google has Tai Chi, Google has art classes, Google has music classes. Is Robert Strong here? Yes. Where are you, Robert? What is your professional job, Robert, at Google? I'm the Google Wizard. <laughs> He's a magician. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually a professional magician, and he teaches magic at Google. I'm a student, actually. I can perform magic tricks, right? Huh? So it's not true that they just do yoga. They have yeah. so many things. It's basically giving permission to Googlers to live a full life. Mm -hmm. I like they have food and cooking classes. and yeah. Yoga just happens to be, I don't know uh, I don't know who has the question. I personally chose. That's my 20-person project. I gave it a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. But there are others who are doing meditation programs. Tai Chi is pretty much a, mm -hmm. is, is also equally available. Yeah, just find your exercise. Find your... Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so is interval training and so is triathlon training. Yeah. And, and are you a better swimmer now from your triathlon experience? Yes, yeah. Excellent. Uh, I still <laughs> use a wetsuit to go in open water. Yeah. I haven't conquered the fear, but I've learned to depend, use other aids to do that. Yeah. I don't drown we'll, anymore. We'll save the backstory for the book. <laughs> <laughs> Plus the roller skating disco party. We'll save that for good reading. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, uh, a lot of it, when we're talking about the pursuit of happiness, takes a lot of courage uh, to step out, maybe where you're uncomfortable, like your public yeah. speaking, etc. Do you think that people are, are, are introverts happier than extroverts? Do you think having public confidence um, improves your ability to be happy? Or do you think that you can be withdrawn but still be quite happy? Yeah, I think you can have, have again, I will go back to the thing, happiness is an inner state. Mm -hmm. So met completely reclusive monks who seem to be at very much at peace and uh, in uh, state of happiness, and there are extroverted people who are happiest when they are out there and in the midst of large gatherings. And mm -hmm. and uh, and surrounded by, by thousands of millions of people, and that makes them happy as well. Speaking of which, if you don't mind my saying, Hazen was just talking about his sister. Can I tell the story? Oh, absolutely, okay. yes. And uh, his sister is actually traveling through India and at a gathering that will draw 100 million people. I'm hoping to go there later in March. I've been there. It's a festival called Kumbh Mela. So talk about that. Can you, can, some of you might think, I can't even imagine how could you be at a place surrounded by so many people, right? <laughs> but for some people, they're drawn to it, and they are happy there in that kind of a setting. In fact, the day I arrived 12 years ago at that festival, there were 36 million people in one single place gathered at a festival. So it's a festival. So everyone is actually celebrating. So I don't think that introversion or extroversion is the factor. And again, you know, the reason I'm actually stumbling with many of these questions is we are searching for a formula that works for everyone. And I, that was my biggest conclusion as part of your own human experimentation. There is no formula that I can recommend for everyone. There are different things you can do. I've talked of my own experiment. I'm asking you to figure each of your model to happiness. Mm -hmm. Okay, And some of you well might be in a reclusive state and some of you might be in an extroverted state. And that's exactly how it should be because there are a million pathways to happiness. 
find your own. Yeah. <laughs> um, in your, the time that you mentioned during the, so the slide when you had that bad week of, you know, of uh, my life melting your job, sort of a bit of a meltdown, you yeah. chose uh, travel. Was that something that um, what you thought was a, 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 a way to wander off and sort of clear your head? As opposed to, oh, I lost my job. I'm going to just dig in and get a great job, and then I'll go from there. Like, what what pushed you to travel? And do you think travel is an important aspect to people to to in, in search not necessarily in search of happiness, but travel is a big part of opening up and understanding yourself. For me, it is. You know, the, I'm happiest when you send me off on a suitcase, put me on a plane, and send to some other part of the world that I've never been to before. And um, and that's a great source of happiness. This constant exploration and ending up in places, like I said, in Mongolia or Antarctica or or Macau, is my source of happiness. And I do it every year, multiple times. But it's not just me. I can look at Gwen, who has been to probably ninety, hundred countries, and I think she's also in the same way. So uh, why I chose to do it at the time for two reasons. First is I wanted to put some separation between my situation here and I felt a actual physical separation and ending up in a completely foreign place where everything is stark naked will just force me to think act differently. In fact, the first country I chose to go was Iceland and I was not even thinking of being there and it, it is just, I said yes. I was driving the car down 101 where there was an ad listening to the radio when there was an ad from Iceland there saying they now had direct flights from San Francisco to Reykjavik, and if you flew midweek, you, it was only $400. And I said, I have $400 ago, <laughs> and I bought the ticket the same day, and I went to Reykjavik. <laughs> and I arrived at this place, it was summer, and all of a sudden I'm in this setting where the sunshine makes me happy, and they had 24-hour sunshine. There's no twilight or anything, it was completely, and, and the whole country felt like a giant geographical construction zone with their glaciers and with the geysers, and it seems to be like geography was still at work, having not quite figured out how to put the land together. <laughs> so everything about it was stark and different, and and that just took me out of my, the change in physical environment took me out of the zone. The second thing also I realized is I said, and it was in response to what Stuart was asking, what is the greater good that can come out of this? I said, I can take every one of my situations, flip it around, and find happiness. So since I didn't have a job and I lost some of my money, I realized that I could put my things in these uh, orange-colored buildings, public storage. And for the first six <laughs> months, they charged only a dollar a month or some small amount just to get you in. So my living costs had gone down to like 10 or $20. That's all I was paying. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, the second thing, I had a little bit. I collected unemployment benefits. Had a hard time with that until mm -hmm. somebody persuaded, said, "This is well within your right. You paid into that system. Now this is your time to claim it." So I took it, and I figured out that I could actually travel in many low-cost countries for a long time and not have to worry about it. <laughs> and I could, and I had another formula also around this time, which is I said I'm not going to stay in a hotel, and I didn't stay for the six months. So I looked up my contact list and tracked down every old friend, high school classmate. <laughs> and the more remote the country they lived in, all the more better. So I picked, like, I'll go to Zambia. I got this friend from high school, and I haven't seen him and spoken to him in 12 years. Uh, so again, it was choosing to live a full life. And 
I don't have the luxury currently, you know, you, neither do you, because our jobs keep us sort of chained here. I said, let me take every disadvantage I felt and flip it around and said, this is actually a great benefit, and I'll take advantage of it. Okay, excellent. Uh, you know, I, like, my wife and I are passionate about traveling. That's our that's our way of finding ourselves, and I recommend it to everybody. Get yep. off the continent. <laughs> and that is one of my closing sentences in one of those chapters. The world is a very large place. Yes. Go. <laughs> so we're uh, down to our last question here. And uh, it was a bit of a dilemma because I didn't get through all the six pages of things I wanted to talk to you about. Sure. But um, uh, you talked a lot about the news cycle and how easy it is to be angry and frustrated. And, uh, and, and you have a couple of the stats here about people that, if you look at the bigger problems in humanity, how things are actually much better. Crime is down, poverty is going away, more people have access to water, basic sanitation. We're solving a lot of really big problems out there. So when you look at, um, at where you are in your career and uh, the company that you're with, if you look at a, one big aspirational objective that you'd like to see solved in the world, what, what, what would that be? So you're saying a problem that has not been solved yet? A big problem that you think that this is really what, it, it's, it would provide purpose, it would provide you know, a, a movement, a unifying example of how yeah. humanity can really push on something. Yeah. What would that big problem yeah. so be? So for me, it is, the, it is the simple issue that even at this, after all the progress we've made, let's not forget the fact that there are still a billion, a billion point five people living in conditions of abject poverty who will see less than $3 in the entire day. So every time we buy a cup of Starbucks coffee, it's a stark reminder that in that one cup of Starbucks coffee, we are experiencing more abundance than what some people will experience the entire day. And uh, just today, 900 million people will actually experience hunger. And it's not for a lack of food, because the world has solved the problem. We produce enough food to feed every single person. But it is a problem associated with distribution. It's because of the systems that we have with tariffs and trade and who gets to see and pricing and all of this. Nature itself is abundant. It is, it is generating enough food to feed every single people. But we still have not, and there are things in, the, in our systems, uh, in our economic and other systems that we created that is preventing from the same food reaching every single people, right? just to use an example. And to me, there is a certain... Uh, injustice in that or how can we live with conditions mm -hmm. like that how can we go to sleep and i wish i could solve the problem on a 10x scale and uh, if i were to just pick one thing i would say get to a point where every single human being is fed and uh, knows security does not go hungry and can sleep well yeah that's a great idea for purpose yeah. and just to close on a really positive note uh, the power of hugs and smiles, medically proven to share and bring happiness to the person you're looking across the aisle yes. at. So I'd like to give you a hug before we're all done here. Before that, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask, no, sorry, every member in the audience, look to the person on your left and right, and at least give them a big beaming smile. The happiest <laughs> smile they can. It's contagious. Well, do it. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.
I hope you enjoy this evening's program, brought to you again by the Wharton Club of Northern California and the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley. Again, we'd like to thank Gopi Kalayo, author of The Happy Human, our moderator, Hazen Jehu, and our audience here in Palo Alto. And now this meeting is adjourned. <laughs>